This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Hello and welcome everyone. This is the UC Center Sacramento Speaker Series. I'm Richard Kravitz, director here at UCCS, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to session four of five of our special winter symposium on chronic homelessness and mental illness. As you know, in prior sessions, we've heard from Elizabeth Twomley at UCSD talking about some of the neurocognitive problems that afflict individuals um, who are homeless, from Amy Mullen and Daryl Steinberg, uh, who spoke on the revolving door from the streets to the healthcare system and back again, and then last week from Enrico Castillo, Castillo, who talked about some intriguing models that are having some success in Finland and Houston for addressing the problem of homelessness. And next week, we'll hear from Joel Braslow on California's homeless and incarcerated mentally ill and historical perspective. But today, we have a distinguished panel addressing potential solutions to California's homeless problem. Um, First, we'll be hearing from Margot Cushell, She's a professor of medicine and director of the Center for Vulnerable Populations at UC San Francisco and also a practicing internist at San Francisco General Hospital. Margot has a, a long and distinguished record of publishing really groundbreaking work on the causes and consequences of homelessness and housing instability. Her approach is, uh, in my view, uniquely holistic and emphasizes the social determinants of health and in particular, the importance of building more and more affordable housing as a solution to the homelessness crisis. And as you can see in her bio, she's principal investigator of an ongoing study that examines homelessness among the older middle-aged. Next, we'll hear from State Senator John Laird, who has long experience in both state and local government. Prior to election as state senator in the 17th district in the north central coast of California, he was a state assembly member, secretary of the California Natural Resources Agency, and mayor of Santa Cruz. So uh, he gets the big picture, but as a former mayor, he also understands where the rubber hits the road. He was an early supporter of the Behavioral Health Bridge Housing Program, which administers grants to counties and tribal entities to address needs of unsheltered homeless individuals who have serious behavioral health conditions. He's a UC Santa Cruz graduate and, according to his website, a longtime Chicago Cubs fan, which I guess speaks to his passion for supporting the underdog. And... Although they, you know, I also had to look this up, but the Cubs have been doing a little better the last five or ten years, so, yeah. Um, Finally, Toby Ewing is Executive Director of the California Mental Health Services Oversight and Accountability Commission. In prior lives, he's been a consultant to the California State Senate, Research Director at California Forward, Project Manager at the Little Hoover Commission, and Director of the California Research Bureau. The Mental Health Commission, uh, if I may for short, um, oversees the implementation of the Mental Health Services Act, which is Proposition 63, passed in 2004, and which is funded by a 1% tax on incomes over a million dollars. 
The Commission works to ensure that people get the care they need in a timely, comprehensive, effective, and culturally competent manner, and it aims to do so in collaboration with local governments as well as many other entities. Dr. Ewing holds a PhD in sociology from Syracuse University and was previously a Fulbright scholar serving in Central America. So uh, now a quick word about the agenda. We'll be hearing from each of our speakers for around 20 minutes. And um, now we'll get started with Dr. Kushel. Thank you so much for the introduction. I'm Margot Kuchel from UCSF. And I'm going to start with just a little background to frame the problem before we get into how we solve the problem. So first of all, as everyone knows, homelessness is extremely common in California. Our 2022 point-in-time count, the point-in-time count is a snapshot version of who's experiencing homelessness in a night, found that California had 171,521 people experiencing homelessness that night. That meant that over 43, almost 44, for every 10,000 people in the state were experiencing homelessness, and two-thirds of them were unsheltered. There are lots of different ways to describe homelessness, but one of the ways is whether people experience chronic homelessness. Chronic homelessness has two components. You've either been homeless for a year or more, or you've spent more than a year in the past three years homeless, and you have a disabling condition. And in California, 57,760 of those 171,000 were considered to be chronically homeless. So when people ask the question, why are people homeless. I really like to break that down into two different questions that I think people are trying to discern. This is a model well described by Drs. Mary Beshin and Jill Kaduri in their groundbreaking book, In the Midst of Plenty. They really break the question down to two actually different questions that have different solutions and different ways of viewing. One is, why are there so many people in California, in San Francisco, in Los Angeles who are homeless? The second question that I think people are often answering, but it's actually a different question, is why is this person experiencing homelessness? Those are two different questions. So let's start with why are people homeless in general? Why are people more homeless in one region or the other? This is a model um, from Marty Burt and all from um, their book in the um, late 1980s, which says that homelessness is an interaction between structural factors. Things like the availability of affordable housing, stagnated wages, income inequality, racism, and individual vulnerabilities, people having mental health disabilities or substance use disorders, adverse childhood experiences, and the presence or absence of a safety net to catch people when they're down. What they said is the less favorable the structural factors and the availability of the safety net is, fewer individual vulnerabilities one needs to become homeless. So if you go to a place like Northern Europe, which has very strong structural factors, right? They've got lots of pretty flat income structure, lots of um, subsidized housing and things. You will still see people who are homeless, but there'll be many fewer of them per population. And the people you'll see will have extremely severe individual vulnerabilities. In California, in 2022, you do not need to have very many individual vulnerabilities to wind up homeless because our structural factors are so broken and our safety net is so frayed. This is an absolutely incredible book. It came out about two years ago, Homelessness is a Housing Problem, which sort of gives you the sense of their thesis right there in the title um, by Aldern and Colburn. And what they say is that 
they think of homelessness as the drivers. These are the systemic factors that create overall homelessness rates and explain the difference of homelessness in communities. This is what explains why does California have so much homelessness. Lack of affordable housing, income inequality, and I would add sort of structural racism, and what they call precipitants, which are these individual risk factors that increase the chance that any individual in a community is going to become homeless. These are things like substance use disorders and mental health problems. They called me to interview me about the book, and I used an analogy. They later told me that most of the people they called used the same analogy, and then I think they wrote it up better than any of us said, which is they describe it like a game of musical chairs. If anyone has ever played musical chairs at like a kid's birthday party, 10 kids, 10 chairs, the grown-up plays the music. While the music is playing, they suddenly pull away one of the chairs, stop the music, and get the kids to scramble for the remaining chairs. They note that if a kid comes to the party and they sprain their ankle the night before and they're on crutches, they're not very good at using it, when you stop the music, that kid has an outsized chance of being the one who doesn't get into the nine chairs, right? So if you ask the question, why is this kid standing? Well, they're standing because they sprained their ankle, they're on crutches, they couldn't race to the chair. But if you ask actually the more fundamental question is why is there a kid standing? A kid is standing because you only have nine chairs, right? So you either have two kids sitting on top of each other or someone's going to be standing. If you had had 10 chairs, the kid on crutches would finally find their way to a chair. And if you had no kids on crutches and you only had nine chairs, somebody was going to be standing. In California today, we have 23 units of housing that's affordable and available for every 100 extremely low-income households. And I'll talk about that in a second. We've basically got 22 chairs for every 100 people. It's in some ways a miracle that we only have 170,000 people experiencing homelessness. Now, it's about the drugs. It's about the mental health care. Why do I think it's not about that? If you look across places in the country, the places with the worst substance use and mental health problems do not have the worst homelessness. We have lots of ways of tracking, for instance, substance use in a community using sort of epi things and things. And if you look at a place, let's say, of West Virginia versus California, as bad as our substance use crisis is here, it's nothing compared to places like West Virginia. So you can see just measuring one measure, drug overdose deaths, much, much higher, like five-fold higher in West Virginia per capita than in California. But look at their homelessness rate. It's about five times lower, right? Why is it different? It's about the housing. Here is what I said. In California, we're the second worst state in the nation on this important metric. How much housing do we have that's both affordable and available for people who are ELI, extremely low income? Extremely low income means you make less than 30% of the household income, the median household income in your area. Affordable means you can pay for that housing with less than 30% of your income, because if you're spending more than 30%, you're not putting money away for you know, the rainy day, you're not spending it on other important things. And is the apartment available? Is it, does it exist and is it not occupied by someone else? California, 23 units for every 100. You can't have any talk about homelessness without calling out the elephant in the room, that this is an issue of racial injustice. Reminder that home ownership in this country has been the primary means of intergenerational wealth building, and until very recently in our collective history, there was legal, immoral, unethical, racist, but perfectly legal discrimination in home ownership, operating through things like racial covenants, neighborhoods are segregated, redlining, the practice of banks, 
being allowed to not offer mortgages if you lived in one of those areas that, that black folks or brown folks had to live in. And, um, and because of that, black and brown folks were basically excluded from the post-World War II boom in home ownership. And therefore, that is a big reason for the big change and big difference in intergenerational wealth. You add to that, it's no longer legal to do that, but we know it still exists. You saw that in the predatory um, lending crisis in 2008, where black and brown households were targeted. Ongoing discrimination, not no longer legal, but ongoing discrimination in rental markets, discrimination in criminal justice, employment, educational systems. Reminder that we fund our education systems a lot through local tax dollars. We still live in those formerly redlined areas. It's perhaps not a surprise that black Americans are three to four full times increased risk of homelessness than white Americans. So what do we do? I'm going to start by saying what we should not do. I'm going to state the obvious that criminalizing homelessness does not solve homelessness. It does not improve public safety. It diverts scarce resources from housing to policing. It is dehumanizing. It worsens impoverishment. It increases incarceration. Um, it poses barriers to exiting homelessness, and all of our longitudinal studies show if you go to jail even for a night, even if you're never charged, your chance of getting housed in the next six months go way down. And it makes it harder for people experiencing homelessness to report threats or to protect themselves if they have this distrusting relationship. How about shelters? Shelters clearly play an important role. As I was driving here from the East Bay, I was getting warnings about freeze warnings, right? You can't sleep outside safely if it's 32 degrees. On the other hand, they alone can't solve shelters, and this is why. Here's a graph of people experiencing homelessness. Here's shelter beds. You fill up the shelter beds. If there's no place to go, you've got all these folks still homeless, and in fact, more become homeless every day, and you're not sort of decanting. You're not moving people along. If you build some housing... You move some folks out of the shelters into housing, you suddenly have more room. So shelters have an important role, but they alone do not solve homelessness. And a reminder that there's no credible evidence that staying in a shelter is actually better for your health than being unsheltered, absent, you know, horrible wealth. It's not that, it's not that they don't provide important service, but they are not the answer. So what solves homelessness? Housing solves homelessness. And as I like to say, everybody needs housing. Some people require services in order to safely stay in that housing. Some people don't. Some people require a lot of services. Some people with a lot of disabling conditions actually need a lot of help. I think about those services like a disability accommodation, like having a wheelchair ramp, right? If you have a bad mental health disability, you might need some help with mental health and some other services to allow you to stay safely in that house, but we know how to do that. Some people require a lot, some people require little, some require not at all. That housing must be affordable, and you have to offer it on a housing-first basis, and I'll talk about that in a quick second. So what do we need to do? We obviously need to ex expand our supply of what I would call ELI housing or housing affordable to extremely low-income households. In California right now, we have a million-unit deficit in ELI housing, a million units short of what we need to go. That 170,000 people is not a group of people. It's like constantly being replaced. Some people get housed in LA for every person they housed, 1.7 fell into homelessness, right? You can't keep it up without, without moving people, preventing people and exiting people. We desperately need to expand our supply of permanent rental subsidies. 
Housing Choice Vouchers, commonly called Section 8, federal program that supplies a subsidy to use that caps the amount of um, income that anyone spends on their rent to 30%. So you spend 30% of your household income, the federal government is good for the rest. Lots of problems with them. They can be hard to use. There's not enough housing in California, lots of discrimination. Absent that, only one in four households that meet the strict criteria get it. Can you imagine with Medicaid, if we said to you, gosh, you qualify, but Mr. Smith just used your spot, so call us back in about three years, and we'll see if we have any. That is not how we do Medicaid, but that's how we do housing choice vouchers. There are, in a lot of regions, 10- and 15-year waits to get that voucher. Okay, So lots of problems with it, but we need to expand that from one in four to, to full. So what is Housing First? Housing First has a lot of um, backlash right now, but I can tell you it is the evidence-based approach to serving homeless individuals. It is not a program. It's a philosophy. It is not housing only. When I say housing first, it doesn't mean that people only need housing. Remember, some people need services. But it is that you start with the housing. It prioritizes safe, permanent, and affordable housing. And engagement in services, and this is a part that's hard for people to wrap your head around, is not mandatory. Because if you make it mandatory, if you say you need to go into treatment for your substance use, you need to enter mental health treatment to get your housing, two things housing, two things happen. People don't take up those services because they're so occupied with trying to like get through the night. So they neither get the services nor do they get housed. If you start with the housing and you offer robust services to be taken on a voluntary basis, people actually take up those services and they remain housed. Um, There's extensive evidence both from trials and from real world sort of pragmatic evidence that this works. The Veterans Administration has relied 100% on Housing First services um, since about um, the mid-1980s. The VA has funding because it's politically palatable, because certainly nobody who served our country should ever be homeless. So they've actually got money to do this. While homelessness in every other sector has been going up and up and up, homelessness among veterans has reduced by now way more than half in the last decade, while every other sector has seen homelessness going up. They have not deviated from a housing first philosophy. Every cent of their money goes into housing first. So you might say, well, that's all well and good, but what about the person I see out there who maybe has psychosis or severe mental illness, someone who's in the throes of an addiction crisis? Surely you can't just give them the housing. What I would say is you can and you must. We were asked to do a trial in Santa Clara County starting about eight years ago. We just finished it um, a couple months ago, where they basically asked us to find the most impossible to house people in Santa Clara County. And we sort of used big data, and we found the 400 most chaotic folks, severest mental illness, severest substance use problems, long-term homelessness in the county. They had about 130 units for us to play with. We couldn't distinguish between these 400 people, so we randomized them, either to get the housing or not to get the housing. They were offered housing through a program called Permanent Supportive Housing, which is the evidence-based way to house people with severe behavioral health disabilities and chronic homelessness. What is it? Subsidized housing, 
linked voluntary supportive services, completely voluntary, offered on a housing first model, no requirements that people of sobriety or were in treatment, and it's shown to be highly effective. In this trial, um, I, we targeted chronically homeless highest users of services. These are people with, you know, five to ten jail stays, five to ten psychiatric ER visits, a couple hospitalizations in the past year or two. Really, really um, impaired individuals. Intervention, permanently subsidized housing, intensive case management meant the master's trained behavioral counselor, like a social worker or MFT, was paired with a bachelor's trained person who helped do all the paperwork, get people benefits, and a peer, someone who themselves have been homeless. Each of those teamlets was responsible for 45 individuals. So there was a 1 to 15 ratio, but really a 1 to 45 for the behavioralist. Um, They got housing, intensive case management, skilled staff, voluntary services, medical care. What did we see? Successful at keeping people housed. We approached about 350 people. We approached them. What we did is we put flags in their chart so they would show up in jail. We would come to the jail and say, hi, nice to meet you. You've never met me before. Do you want to fill out a bunch of paperwork for a 50-50 chance of getting housed? In the hundreds of people we approached, three said, no, not today. Everybody said, I'll fill out a lot of paperwork for a one in two chance of getting housed. Once they were housed, when we published a trial, 86% got housed. We've now looked at seven years. 91% of these folks who we approached out of the blue got housed, and then we followed them for seven years. Once they were housed, they stayed housed 93% of the nights on average, meaning a few people fell out, but not for four years when we published it. Now we've done seven years the same. Once they were housed, they stayed housed. It took about two and a half months from the moment we met them in the ER or at the jail until they moved into their housing. About 70% moved. They had to, they often sort of blew out of one relationship. So what we did is they just pulled them into a temporary unit and put them in some other unit. And guess what? The landlord was like, oh, you listened to me when I complained. They just put someone else back into that unit. It worked incredibly well. There's lots of opportunities now with CalAIM, the new Medicaid waiver, to fund key supportive services, housing navigation, first months. This will make it a lot easier to fund the services to support it. We need collaboration between health plan, health delivery systems, and housing providers, but we can get there. Where do we go from here? Understand that the underlying structural factors that create and sustain homelessness. The homelessness system alone can't solve homelessness without structural changes, increasing ELI housing providing services to match individual needs. Shelters clearly play a key role, but do not solve homelessness on their own. And stick to housing first. That's what the evidence says. Thank you so much, and we're going to take questions later. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I have to comment that Ever since 2016, people don't laugh about the Cubs as, as, as much as they used to. And, and probably the greatest post in likes that I ever made is my father, unfortunately, did not live to see that. As a lifelong Cubs fan from south of Chicago. And I went to his grave in Santa Rosa and put a Cubs pennant. And the headline from the San Francisco Chronicle sporting section that said, Hell freezes over. And I put that on his grave, and it had more likes than anybody ever uh, uh, did. And I apologize for having to leave a little early because we have a hearing in the Capitol um, later this afternoon. But I was asking myself, geez, I wonder why they asked me 
to be on the panel because given what you just heard, I don't know if I have that level of program knowledge or that level of skill, but I do have a rather unique experience, which is I have been dealing with this as an elected official for between 35 and 40 years, and it's uh, my job to listen to that and try to figure out tangibly how you can turn it to action that fits where the public is and what you have the ability to do. And that is, when I was resources secretary, it was mentioned in the introduction, I spent half my time in meetings saying to people, how do we get to the end? They'd be wrapped around the axle about some extensive process, and I'd say, how do we get to the end? And that really is a relevant question here, and I think one that was first an elected official over 41 years ago is a thing that characterizes what you have to do. And I think that that if you look to my experience, I, I was on the city council for nine years, from 1981 to 1990, including a couple of terms as mayor in Santa Cruz. <clears throat> and my second term of mayor was the dawn of the modern homeless advocacy. Uh, our meetings were disrupted for four months. People were arrested in every meeting. Our budget hearing was shouted down. I was describing beforehand that there was a time when I was home one night and police dispatch calls and says there's 100 people a couple of blocks away and they're heading to your house and we just want you to know that they're coming and we have our eyes on this. And, and I turned my lights off and went to the back of the house. But for years there was melted wax on my sidewalk from everybody that was carrying the candles uh, from that happening, and you are right front and center. You can never run away from how those issues face you. I, you, I give advice to new local elected officials that if, if you go to the grocery store, get your frozen goods last, because otherwise they will melt before you can get through the checker, because you are there where people have the issues and the concerns. And when that was happening <clears throat> in the 80s, it was a lot of the same things we hear now. Uh, people... Uh, uh, people don't live here, they're not from here, uh, they choose to be homeless, uh, uh, all these different issues that it seems like sometimes the public debate has not changed in the 35 years since that happened. And so it was our decision as a city to try to do something. And it took, it was such a difficult process, but we bought a shelter that was for 60 people and raised money for it and worked with nonprofit providers to wrap services around and fundraised for it in addition to city money. And if any of you are f familiar with municipal process, we had the nightmare of being the applicant and the person that had to consider the application, you, you, you know, which was, was not a pleasant thing. It's an implied conflict of interest. And we did that shelter, and we promised there would be no more services in that neighborhood around that shelter. Now that is the center of services, and it has expanded dramatically since that time, and I'm, I'm hoping nobody's still alive that remembers our process uh, promise uh, on that. But if you fast forward to now, you just heard a, a very eloquent a talk about what works, what doesn't work. And I have this unique situation where my Senate district, 
I, I really am jealous of Scott Weiner, whose district goes seven miles by ten miles, and his big problem is finding parking when he goes from event to event. And my district is three hours and 15 minutes from one side to the other side if there's no traffic and if you go above the speed limit a bit. And, and there are 21 cities, and if you factor out the part of the city of San Jose that I have, the next biggest city is 60,000 people, and it goes down. And every single one is grappling with the issue of the unhoused in a non-urban area. And it raises all these issues. In, in Paso Robles, the Salinas River goes through town, and people have been camping in the river. And there was a big debate with the state water board of whether they could clear the river. And the state water board didn't let them do it right away. And then a fire roared out of the the homeless campground and took houses and and you can imagine the underlying discussion about whether to do something after that happened and in the atmospheric rivers they had to do a very unique response where they had to get everybody out of the river from people that that aren't conventionally reachable and so they did signs in and out of every place in the river they stationed people there they had trained people from nonprofits go into the river and, and talk to people, and they had helicopters go over, and they believed they got everybody out before that river flooded and swept. It's, that's the place that the five-year-old boy was swept away. And the real question was getting uh, uh, unhoused people out of there and to safety before that happened. And the point-in-time count, the pit count, was mentioned in the previous talk. And it's anecdotal. I I would think that maybe it's easier to do in urban areas where you know every place, you know where people go. But I talk to the people that do it in my hometown of Santa Cruz, and it is surrounded by green belts everywhere. There are state parks within a mile or two. And everybody is just convinced that you're doing this point-in-time thing, you are not capturing people. There are just ways you don't know where people have gone into the forest or other places. And, and when I was running, the city closed down a campground that was in the Redwood Forest, about a half a mile outside the urban area, but still inside the city limits where people had chopped down redwood trees and built cabins and, and done different things, which, of course, made the enviros crazy because, uh, you know, we have a permit process for chopping down redwood trees. And yet it just keeps moving people. And the, there was this, when I first came back to the Senate, there was this campground of between three and 400 people that was at the major freeway intersection in town that I passed every Monday morning when I left for Sacramento and passed coming back in. And it was at one point shut down, and things just kept moving. It was a matter of where it cropped up because the problems that were associated with it were not being addressed. And, and one of the big problems is, is that... Uh, the previous speaker described the numbers and the, and the fact that there's these big cities. But in some of the smaller cities, the per capita population of unhoused people is bigger than the urban areas. In Santa Cruz, that is most definitely true. We, we always say on a per capita basis, there are more unhoused people than San Francisco and L.A. and San Diego, and yet the money doesn't come that way uh, uh, naturally from governments. And so you are trying to figure out 
how to get ahead of it. And so in my first year back, the assembly member joined with me, and we got $14 million as a line item in the budget to go to the city of Santa Cruz to try to get ahead of it. And then lo and behold, this campground materializes, and it's in what's known as the Benchlands, which is the floodplain uh, uh, next to the courthouse. And fortunately, about three weeks before the atmospheric river, they dissolved this campground. But because they have resources, they have a shelter at the armory, and they were able to establish a case for every single individual person that lived in that campground. And they documented an offer of housing to every single member of that campground. And so in the other breakups of campgrounds, there have been lawsuits because people didn't have a place to go. This was the first time there was never a legal challenge because the the offer was made of – Less than half took the offer, which was interesting, but the fact that in a documented way an offer was made to everybody allowed for the legal closure of that campground. And thank God, because the river flooded into it three weeks later in the atmospheric rivers, and that would have been horrific if people were, were camping there. And if you look up and down the district, I did my best in the last year to visit every outlet of services for uh, the homeless in the entire district. And so they're doing tiny houses in Grover Beach. In response to what's going on in Paso Robles, they bought a Motel 6. They have a shelter in Atascadero. They have a comprehensive one in San Luis Obispo. And, you know, into Monterey, they're, they're doing it finally in downtown Monterey. They have a family's one in Seaside. They have a huge one in in Salinas, in Santa Cruz, <clears throat> there's a veterans one being built in the mountains, especially focused on veterans. And there's a, a comprehensive program in Santa Cruz on the site that we promised there would not be additional services 30-something years ago, where they have a shelter, a basic shelter that houses a bunch of people. They have tiny homes. They have rehab beds for people coming out of the hospital with no place to go until they rehab from whatever happened in hospital. There's a locked ward. There's a family shelter with 30 apartments. There's a clinic that faces outside as well as inside. There's showers. There's mailboxes. There's clothes. There's lofts. They have everything that would be needed, and they feel like they can barely dent it. And after a certain amount of time with this experience... They believe that a key part of the solution is developing housing for the lowest uh, level of income. And, and while they have a condition that people will agree to look for housing as the condition to reach service, re, uh, receive services, and they will work with them. And so they, they do uh, – they even work with landlords – on placement of Section 8 vouchers so that the landlords will understand and feel comfortable uh, with the placement. And now they just decided, as I was saying, the only way to do it is to construct housing. So they have proposed 118-unit, five-story, lowest-income housing, and they've gotten two grants from the state. They're about 75 or 80 percent of the way there on the money because they just don't see – 
how they can dent it with everything they're doing, which is virtually everything across the spectrum, unless they're actually providing housing units that don't exist for the lowest of the low incomes. And so then you turn to us and, and, you know, my job was to help them get ahead of it in that area. And, and, and it was interesting because then I met with all the different officials. And the, the county officials surprised me because the city was always mad at the county for not giving them enough resources while they were front line with the police and in the open space and everything. And yet the county says there's just no accountability. We don't have uh, responsibility you know, sometimes we have money and authority without accountability, and that was an interesting takeaway, is, is how do you construct something that's regional where people are accountable for the, the outcomes and accountable for actually providing the resources to do this in a coordinated way? And the assembly member at the time who helped me with the Santa Cruz money, we used it to leverage cooperation between the agencies that didn't exist before. That was our way, bringing money to the table. They came to the table, and we, they actually got a facilitator and worked out a lot of the issues they had between the levels of government in, in how to provide this. And, and so if you, <clears throat> you know, and, and a lot of it is, is, like was just said, in the ideal world, you do housing first. And it raises a few issues. There's always an anomaly. And if you're a state official, nothing drives you crazy than creating a program that's one size fits all because there's always sizes that don't fit. And if you are out on parole and a condition of parole is you can't be around anybody that's using, you have to figure out a way that you wrap them into to uh, shelter services and not expose them to somebody that's on drugs because it's a condition of their parole. And frequently when you do the housing first, sometimes it knocks families farther down in the priority. And you have to figure out a way that you make sure that they are there and you you are addressing that uh, issue. And so now this year, uh, my challenge is to make sure that the state monies line up with what everybody's doing successfully at the local level. And because it frequently doesn't. You, You see the the home key, and some of the other big deals, well, that helps big deals. It it doesn't necessarily help when somebody in a smaller city is is doing some service where they really need uh, the help. And it's I got money in the budget to help develop the Monterey shelter because they had to raise money for the acquisition and, and the remodel before they could even get to the services. And you have to line up. It's so strange that people make the decisions. In Grover Beach, they decided to do the tiny tiny houses without having a grant of state money in any way. They just plunged ahead, and they hope at some point they make this work. And that's what I have to do, is, is to try to figure out how people that are actually lunging into a solution and deciding the solution is so important that they don't necessarily have the commitments for certain kinds of support to make it happen. And so... Um, that's, and you're dealing with the public. I mean, we were talking beforehand about, the, oh, they don't live here. Geez, I've heard that for 35 years. And they actually did a survey that showed something like two-thirds of the people that were unhoused in Santa Cruz were from Santa Cruz. It, was, it, it, it surprised people. And I ran an aid service agency at the height of the epidemic over 30 years ago. And, 
and there were all these things that were counterintuitive. You, you had to not require disclosure of status because you wanted people to come in. And people would say, well, this is common sense. This is public health. But it's like, no, we don't want people outside the system that aren't protecting themselves and doing things. We need to bring them in. So you need to do what it takes to bring them in. And the analogy is the same with shelter. You need to do what it takes to bring people in, even though people want to say, as was previously said, oh, you got to be drug-free. you got to do this. you got to do that. The most important thing is to get them in, and then you can wrap around the services and make it happen. And so, And the toughest thing is in the face of very heated rhetoric, trying to turn this to outcomes and turn people to be supportive of outcomes that get you there. And and for those of us that take our job seriously, and that's not every elected official, but hopefully it's a lot of us, um, that's our goal. And that's what we have to do. And it's trying to turn down the temperature. And, and get, you know, the, the city council in Santa Cruz two years ago or three years ago decided to adopt this ordinance of where people could camp and where they couldn't camp. And they're all my friends. And so I was saying to him privately, this is crazy. This is crazy. It's not going to survive a legal test uh, uh, at the very basis, but this is not good public policy. You think it's defending you against what the onslaught is. And, of course, it blew up. They never could even approve it to get to the point of a court case. But it's trying to figure out in the face of efforts like that how to convince people to sort of stick to a plan that actually makes change and and where you can see demonstrable progress. And I think Karen Bass is a good friend of mine. I served with her in the assembly, and I am marveling at some of the commitments that she's making. And I hope to God that she could show some progress in meeting them because she is one of the better mayors that they will ever have in Los Angeles. But that's the risk you take, quantifying it, setting those goals, and getting out there. So in any event... It's sort of, you know, my challenge is trying to turn it to action, take down the temperature a little bit, and and try to really meaningfully act in the face of all this. And and I have to say, you know, all of us in elected office start out mostly being lay people. So we really depend on people telling us what works, what doesn't work, and, and we have to translate it to messaging. And nothing makes me crazy. I am science-based. We turned everything to science in the resources agency, but scientists, some of them never took a messaging class. And you're trying to figure out how to just get it across to people so that they really get the message and can do it. So hopefully I'll still be here for some of the questions, but if not, I'll look forward to seeing you, and thank you for having me here today. Uh, Senator Laird, thank you so much for those remarks. Um, because you, you might not be here for the full panoply of questions, I just wanted to sneak one in, and then we'll go to Dr. Ewing. Um, you mentioned an issue that Mayor Steinberg also mentioned so, several weeks ago about um, the challenges that face cities and counties in their relationship and the matter of accountability. Is there anything the state can do to help ease that relationship and create greater partnerships between cities and counties? The answer is yes. 
although half the time I'm not sure exactly how. But I think that right now, uh, a lot of the money comes directly to the counties with no requirement that they engage other levels of government or no incentives to engage the other levels. And here's the city provided me once a budget for how much they spent on police response, uh, uh, other things, and it was in the millions and millions of dollars. And uh, I really think there has to be a way, and, and we had a panel at our caucus that that the previous speaker participated in uh, last week or the week before. And we really wanted to know this question, and people talked about it but talked around it. And I'm convinced that you can do grants that require people to come in. And and one of the problems right now is is we had a hearing on homeless programs in front of the Budget Committee in the Senate, and it was painful because it was all just a list of what all the programs were and how much money it was. And we wanted to ask about accountability and about coordination between governments. And they were really stuck on just the reporting of what's in each line item. And and I think there's a way to take the grant process and condition some of it on people working together in a way that that is exactly what you asked for in the question. And we've got to figure out how to do it. So th- thank you very much for the chance to be here, and I and I um, just want to appreciate the the center here for putting so much attention on this challenge. Um, I'm going to focus my remarks to really build off of what you heard around some of the structural issues around housing. And uh, on behalf of the Mental Health Commission, I'm going to focus on the component that was around resiliency and risk factors, and really try to give you some sense of optimism. You know, we actually have grant programs that are, structure, that are structured to create those incentives for collaboration. Um, what I really want to do is I'm, I'm going to talk about some system reforms that we're promoting, because I, I think you heard from the first speaker about how the system design is really creating the conditions that make it hard to achieve success in terms of housing stability. When, particularly when paired with the risk factors that individuals, right? Why is that one individual homeless rather than why are so many? So, you know, building off of that question. So um, I, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, a, a range of strategies that we're trying to promote as a governance approach, recognizing that governance can be reframed to, to put more attention on the goal and to try, to try to create incentives and structures that will be more responsive to the problems that we're seeing today. This is a fancy way of saying the system we've built today that caused this problem is unlikely to actually resolve the problem. And so we're trying to actually change some of our systems so that we can be more attuned to the reality that is out there. But there are uh, an array of forces or factors or cultures that are really working against success in this space. And one example is the, the competition that often happens between the city and the county, right, this lack of trust. So it, it sounds like there was a mention of that in, in uh, Mayor Steinberg's comments. It was mentioned today in, this, in response to this question. Um, we see that in the, in the school mental health space where we've structured fiscal policy to create competition between county behavioral health departments and school districts, particularly for difficult-to-serve children or families. 
whose responsibility is that? Right? We've sort of chopped our system up into these silos, and then, and then we wonder why our system is so siloed, particularly when we try to uh, deliver care that is integrated. And what people really want is a service that's responsive to their needs, right? As, as um, we were talking a little bit before this, when we create a system that's difficult to navigate, and then we ask people who have very few resources, tools, and capacity to navigate a difficult system to be successful, when we put the burden on the individual to be successful, we shouldn't be surprised that the barriers we create actually make success difficult. So... Um, the Mental Health Commission was formed through the uh, establishment of the Mental Health Services Act, which was Proposition 63, as it was mentioned earlier. And there's a provision in there that says we must do prevention. And it, in the definition of prevention in the mental health space, it includes preventing homelessness. It includes preventing criminal justice involvement, uh, school failure, child welfare involvement, suicide, prolonged suffering. suffering. Uh, and so, you know, many of the factors that have been discussed throughout the series, and some of which were discussed today in the first presentation and in the senator's comments, really apply to the language of the Mental Health Services Act. At the commission, I'll just mention that we are part of the state's No Place Like Home advisory body, and so that's a, a bond measure to create more housing for more dollars for supported housing explicitly. It's explicitly designed for supported housing. I'm that's the only comment I'm going to make explicitly about the housing side. What else are we doing? And, and, and this list is really to give you some sense of hope and optimism, but also to sort of push and engage you around the kinds of strategies that you might think about in your work. First, we're really trying to understand, to strengthen the understanding of the behavioral health impacts of trauma and traumatic events. Prior to the pandemic, this was a topic that was really discussed in academia, in a, in a clinical environment, but it was not something that we were thinking about at, at high levels of public policy. COVID-19 has changed that. As the, as the state and the federal government through FEMA began to formulate its response to the pandemic, it really revealed that our traditional disaster response of step in and provide someone with a 60-day housing support or a two-week supply of food, the kinds of things you might do through a traditional traumatic, a traditional natural disaster, we might say, is really inadequate. And we actually learned that in the campfire in Butte County in, in the northern part of California as children had to go back to school after they had been evacuated. And we realized that our behavioral health response systems were really well attuned to public safety kinds of issues. We're actually pretty good at short-term housing in disaster response, but the behavioral health research shows that this kind of a traumatic event has a three to five year lag in terms of the emotional response, particularly for children. We learned that in Katrina, we learned that in 9-11, we learned that in the Deepwater Horizon uh, oil spill. But our behavioral health response isn't designed to recognize those kinds of traumatic events. We don't think about those time frames. Well, we all hope there isn't another COVID-19 pandemic, um, but the reality is, is that we have these kinds of disasters in our communities every year, an earthquake, a, a fire, a flood, um, a mudslide. But we also have them in, in our individual and family lives, a bankruptcy, a divorce, a job loss, a, a mass shooter event, right? And so we can learn a lot about the impact of COVID-19 and how we think about behavioral health and apply that to, the, to our work moving forward. So we're really trying to strengthen our understanding of how we understand trauma, 
what our definitions of trauma are, the sources of trauma in, at the community level as well as the individual level and how we respond to that. We're really working to shift, and I'll give you some examples of this. We're shifting fiscal strategies away from supplemental funding towards incentive funding. Historically, the state says there's a baseline of funding. When we have one-time funds, we'll say, oh, here's, here's a supplement. Here's a little bit extra. And we're really pushing to redefine to actually turn supplemental funding into incentive dollars because those short-term dollars are gone, that if you raise that base of funding and the money is now gone, people then have to scramble to say, now what do I, what do, I do now? So what we're really trying to do in the areas that we work, trying to change the nature of these dollars to actually support the ability of our local partners to, to, to rethink their systems so that when one-time or short-term money is gone, the underlying system is reorganized in a way that is more responsive. How do we get big, bigger bang for the buck? How can the state use state dollars to incentivize risk-taking for bureaucracies that are really hesitant to take risks? This is actually embedded in the Mental Health Services Act. There's a, there's a 5% set aside for innovation. The law actually requires our local county behavioral health partners to recognize that the system we have today is not the system we need and to try things that are outside of the traditional approach. So we're, we're, the commission is really working to create an environment where we can take advantage of these opportunities and really think differently about undermining, uh, underlying fiscal systems and how we can reorient those to be more outcome-focused. We are supporting innovations, that language in the law. California is unique. We have somewhere in, it, it fluctuates every year because our revenue stream is very volatile, um, but somewhere in the range of 150 to $200 million a year for innovative approaches. No other state has this opportunity out there. What we're missing is the culture, the capacity, the, the, uh, the tools to take best available advantage of these dollars to really rethink and redesign and reformulate our systems. Um, we're elevating the voices of those we serve. Part of the challenge we have is quite often, if you know, any of you have interacted with government, you might have said, I don't know that I would have designed it this way, right? And, and so we're, we're working with you know, direction from the governor and the legislature. We're working to elevate the voices of, of people living with mental health needs, including people who are unhoused or who have been unhoused, right? We think one of the strongest ways that we can aggressively address the challenges we have is making sure that the people we're trying to serve actually don't just have a seat at the table, but have the microphone, right? And, and, and have the opportunity to inform and drive and shape and work in the systems that were designed around their needs and to be responsive to their needs. And we're focusing on upstream prevention. I'm going to give you some examples um, because that's, that's sort of very conceptual, but I'll try to make it very practical. And these examples touch upon uh, I, you know, many of the themes that have been addressed in the series. So law enforcement, the role of public safety partners, um, hospital emergency departments. One of the talks was people cycling through emergency departments. The intersection of mental health need and the, and the stability that we look for in terms of housing. Um, key drivers like economic security, issues of, of addiction that elevate risk factors, as was mentioned. Um, and then public perception. Right? One of the foundational concerns we have is public perception of what the actual problem is public understanding of the kinds of solutions we should be thinking about, and how do we humanize, right? How do we actually change this narrative and dialogue about what it is we're trying to accomplish? 
So I have this whole long list here. I'm just going to go through some of this. But the idea is to really um, um, spark your imagination and curiosity and facilitate some Q&A. So um, we, from, from this prevention uh, lens, we recognize that the, the three-quarters of severe and persistent mental illness are likely to affect someone in the early years of their lives in, as a teenager or as a young adult, so before the age of 24. And so um, historically, schools and county behavioral health departments did not work together. Separate governance structures, separate boards, right? The jurisdiction of the geography of our governments don't match very well. They do in some places, um, particularly in rural areas, but in, in urban and complicated counties, right? The school, multiple school districts, right? So uh, we created a Mental Health Student Services Act. The legislature created the Mental Health Services Act, and we're implementing that, which is designed very simply to create partnerships between schools and county behavioral health departments. If you want to serve kids, you've got to meet kids where they are. Schools are the most trusted public agencies in our state. They are from Imperial County to Del Norte, and if you know where, you know, Modoc is as well. Uh, and so every Californian whose school age intersects with a school. And so we really wanted to leverage our K-12 infrastructure to create trust and understanding and awareness. And, and the uh, governor and the legislature have followed up with the, Cal- the Child and Youth Behavioral Health Initiative, $4.7 billion, a tremendous, a historic investment in really leveraging schools to think differently. And, and what is the connection between school mental health and homelessness? It's those risk factors, right? It does not address the access to affordable housing, right? It does address the economic opportunity that young people have, and it addresses how we think about and understand mental illness. California has, uh, we, ha- we now have partnerships all throughout the state of California that are connecting what's happening in schools with what's happening in communities around mental health needs. And one of our earlier conversations, we were talking about mindfulness. We were talking about how do you create, this is really about resiliency, right? It's really about public understanding and awareness. Uh, we're sponsoring a model called Crisis Now, which was developed in Arizona, and it's about fine-tuning the match between your system of care and the demand on that system of care. It's, it's bringing data and analytics into the conversation so we can make sure that the system that we have is actually aligned with the kinds of calls we get, the kinds of needs that we have. Um, we're promoting something called Psychiatric Advanced Directives, which is the idea of empowering someone who has a history of mental health crises to actually be in charge of their care. Our traditional response is to take away their rights and say someone else is going to decide the treatment needs for you when you're in a crisis. In the United States, we're very uh, familiar with advanced directives for end-of-life care. Someone has the right to determine what happens in their care at the end of their life. But for someone who might have a psychotic disorder or might have a history of being what we call 5150, where they're involuntarily treated, what we have said, can that person actually drive their treatment strategy by talking with them when they're not in a crisis so that we can put in place a treatment strategy that is human-centered based on their needs? Will that actually speed recovery and reduce the likelihood of that law enforcement involvement, that hospitalization, that um, involuntary treatment from the outset. Uh, the commission is, we will be discussing a report uh, in the next two weeks that is focusing on opportunities for things like guaranteed basic income. 
if we want to reduce trauma, if we want to reduce that stress, if we want to increase that resiliency, how can we recognize the underlying factors that, that drive risk for mental health needs? We are sponsoring a youth drop-in model called Alcove. So any, if any of you are from Santa, uh, Santa Clara County, our first center opened in Santa Clara. The second center is opened in Redondo Beach. This is a youth-driven model, and it's designed to create, the mention was low barrier care. This is low barrier care for young people when we're most vulnerable for uh, mental health needs to create a level of trust and understanding. It's actually integrated physical health and mental health. This is all about reducing stigma, reframing the problem, and, re, and reframing the opportunity. In California, um, we, in the United States, we have a model for uh, early response to psychosis. But unfortunately, our research shows that only about 1 in 10 Californians who develop psychosis over the course of this year will have access to the most effective practice. And the difference between someone developing psychosis who gets high-quality care early on within the first uh, 6 or 18 months of their psychosis and someone who does not can be the difference between that person being chronically homeless and struggling because of unaddressed mental health needs. And so we have a national model, we have a research base, but our system is not currently guaranteeing access to that care. Recently, a friend of mine was testifying before Congress, and he was asked if we should do universal screening for mental health needs among young people. And the classic example is no. The panelists before this congressional hearing, and they got to this gentleman who's a, a child psychiatrist, and he said, are you asking that question about childhood leukemia? And the answer is, of course not, because it would be unacceptable to suggest that cancer among children is something that we're better off not knowing about because we do not have the capacity to respond. But when it comes to mental health needs, we've set up a system that makes it fundamentally acceptable to say, perhaps we're better off not knowing, and we'll deal with that problem when it becomes a scenario around a homeless, mentally ill person on the street who is making someone uncomfortable. So... Um, you know, we're really trying to strengthen access to early intervention and prevention services. We're um, elevating the voice of youth. We're elevating the voice of mental health peers. We're um, trying to establish a public health-based shared understanding of what prevention and early mental health intervention means. Right? We have strong shared understandings of what prevention means in so many other aspects of health care. But mental illness and mental health, the stigma, the shame, the uncertainty. In uh, the example of, of so many cancers, in one to two generations, we have changed our comfort level around what we need to do to drive up outcomes and drive down death and despair associated with illnesses. Think about breast cancer, right? Think about colon cancer. Think about the conversations we're having in our community. I, I spoke a few years ago, or a few months ago, at the League of Cities for, the, for Nevada, and I asked, you know, raise your hand if you have, you know, worn a shirt or, uh, uh, you know, talking about support for breast cancer. You know, if you have a family member who says they're a, a breast cancer survivor, if you have gone on a walk, right, and everybody raised their hand. And I said, how many of you have friends that say living with schizophrenia? 
how many of you will wear that shirt who are very comfortable talking about suicide in your family, right? I have two family members who have unfortunately died by suicide, and we don't talk about it, right? But we all know who we have lost, who we have loved, who has died from cancer, who's a survivor, right? We have to fundamentally change our public understanding, our awareness, the stigma, and the way to do that is to actually engage, to embrace, to share, to tell our stories. We, one, one of the things I'm excited because there's lots of young people in this room, we are supporting young people to actually share their story among their peers. One of the most um, profound things we can do in this space to connect around the crisis of homelessness actually is to talk to people who are experiencing homelessness. To, to elevate and respect their story, not to condemn it, not to blame them, not to shame them, but to recognize the intersection of uh, the conditions of housing, the conditions of employment, the opportunities that we do or do not create for, pe for people, and to recognize the intersectionality of their, in their lives around purpose, place, and the people around them. Thank you for the chance to be here and love to answer any questions you might have. All right, well, thank you very much to both of you. Um, so we're going to open up our question and answer session in just a moment. Um, first, um, just maybe a question for the two of you jointly. It, it seems like um, if there was any uh, singular message out of the, the three discussants, it was that the solution to chronic homelessness for the chronically mentally ill is permanent supportive housing. Um, and that, um, that involves permanent housing on the one side and supportive services on the other. To what extent uh, is, the, is there enough dialogue and the right kind of dialogue between the housing side and the services side? Could there be more? And what kind, what kind of action do we need to take collectively to make that happen? I think that's a great question. I think I like to think about big P policy, which are sort of the ideas and the structures to do it, and then small P policy, how it plays out on the ground. And there's no question um, of what the correct big P policy here. Um, and there's no question that we're struggling a bit on the small P policy, on the implementation, that um, this is a model that has um, that's relatively broad and that is in a sense clinically based, you know, that you need to sort of have determine how much services someone needs to thrive and a recognition that those services may wax and wane over time, you know, that you might need to front load the services and then someone gains more stability and maybe they just need a small amount of support. I think that there has been, you know, if there's one theme not only for our government, but also for things like the healthcare system and um, other systems is like even within the healthcare system, we're siloed. You know, when I have someone on the inpatient medical ward and I need to um, transfer them to the surgical ward, I literally um, write an order saying transfer to surgery and it's done. If I want to transfer them to the psychiatric ward, um, we actually have to discharge them from the hospital and readmit them to this. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense, but it's because of the way our funding streams work. So even within the healthcare system, we're really siloed. And there's a huge siloing between the healthcare system and the housing system that needs to be bridged and the, and the social service system, I guess I would say. So um, I think there's a lot more that needs to be done. A lot of the services 
um, are really um, healthcare and social service systems, right? So, social service systems, um, and those two systems are are not in alignment, and they're certainly far from the housing system. So I hear from a lot of the housers, like you keep saying these services are billable to Medi-Cal. Like what's Medi-Cal? Like I, you know what is this Medi-Cal you talk of? Is that is that is that the same as Medicare that my mom had? Like really? Like they're like ask me how to how to develop low income housing, I would have no idea. Ask me about Medi-Cal, and I sort of know what I'm talking about, right? So um, I think why would we expect people who are experts in developing low income housing to understand our really um, Byzantine healthcare system? But then when you talk to the healthcare providers and you say, "Come on, guys, you need to step up to the plate. Like these folks need your help. We know how to do this. We know how to create, um, you know, intensive case management led by." A, a clinician for whom you can bill medical, and they're kind of like, but that's not in their clinic. That's not, you know, that's not who he is. So we have a lot, I think, of work that we need to do to get the models working. And I think when our models don't work, we leave room for criticism. You know, that people look and say, well, gosh, that didn't work. It doesn't, you know, it's not working. Well, it's not working because you don't have sufficient services to meet the needs of the people who go in. That leaves this wide open space for members of the public to say, see, housing first doesn't work. As opposed to say, oh, wow, you're not implementing that model optimally. You're not providing the right service mix to someone. You know, if someone has, to use the analogy, leukemia, and I'm like, oh, wow, they're bleeding a lot, which is a side effect of leukemia. If I were to offer them, I don't know, the treatment that we offer for someone who bleeds because they're cutting themselves and put a bandage on their arm, I probably wouldn't do a very good job treating their leukemia, right? We need to match the services to the problem. And so I think there's a lot of room on the small p policy to actually get these systems to work. And I think absent that, you leave this wide open space. Like we're dealing with this massive backlash against housing first. There's no question that housing first is the right policy, but I don't think we've always done the best job implementing it because housing first, the services have to be voluntary, but that doesn't mean the services aren't there. And more importantly, the level of services need to match the need. You know, I do a lot of work with aging homeless populations. About half of single homeless adults are 50 and over. About half of those folks never were homeless before the age of 50. Those are low-wage workers who've been working minimum-wage jobs their whole life. Something happens after the age of 50. They lose their job. They get hurt. They get sick. Their mom dies. Something happens, and they find themselves out in the street. These are not folks who need, like, a psychiatrist to help them. What they need is housing that they can afford and the services that, you know, older adults might need in the community. On the other hand, if you have someone who's been homeless for 10 years, has a psychotic disorder, and maybe uses substances, they actually need a bunch of services to support them in that housing. If we don't supply those services, it's not going to work. So all that to say, there's a lot of work to be done on the small p policy, and a lot of that work has to be done to, A, create the laws that allow, that incentivize this cooperation, but also literally to help bring the two, you know, the, the partners together to make it easier for them to, to all do what they need to do to make these models work. The only thing I would add to that is, you know, when we talk to people in the community, um, there are people who say, I, you, know, you know, I want supportive housing, right? But usually people don't say, I want to live in supportive housing for the rest of my life. What they say is, I, I don't want to need supportive housing, Right, and so I want the support, the assistance 
to be able to, you know, enter supportive housing if that's what I need at the moment, but to move on for independent living, right? Um, again, it's about being surrounded by people who care about you. There's a lot of loneliness in these environments which can undermine the success in um, supporting independence. People, people want purpose. They want hope. They want a job. They want a job that pays enough to pay for the housing, right? And, and, and so I would say um, we have to do a better job connecting housing and services just consistent with uh, you know, the, the comments today. But we also need to reframe the goal that this, it, what should be an interim solution, and it may not be an interim solution for everybody, but in other aspects of healthcare, the goal is to sort of get people to independence, right? We recognize that you know, if, if, if we're you know, dealing with leukemia or some other chronic condition, how do we actually help this person live independently with a chronic condition? And so supportive housing is a, is a fundamentally important component of that. But I would say it's an insufficient solution, particularly for, you know, if we're going to be able to um, best support the, you know, the populations we care about. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.